1: Why is BetterHelp
3: so obsessed with us? (laughs) Because they know that we and all of our listeners are deeply unhinged. Virgins, I'm sure all of you are very upset that this is the first time you're hearing us this week because you have been enjoying our bonus episodes all October long. But I have to say... I'm so fucking happy Halloween is over. Well, I mean, we're actually coming to f- from the past. We are recording <laughs> this on actual Halloween. But girl, this year, it really, really dragged.
4: You know, as someone who claims to be a Halloween queen, uh, as this is your... Favorite holiday, I believe. I've never said that. I definitely think you've said that before. And I, I, no, I'm a
3: spooky girl. I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily a Halloween devotee.
4: All that is to say, you're being a real Halloween Grinch right now. You are on it's the top just, of Mount Crumpet. Well, actually, what's the mountain in Nightmare Rift Christmas? That's like the mountain you. I don't think time. it has a
3: name. Oh. Just like the curly, the curly the mountain, curly little <laughs> little hill. No, yeah. obviously, I love Halloween. It just. I have to say, I was very unimpressed by the celebrity Halloween costumes this year. And the person who won Halloween, in my opinion, was Addison Rae. (laughs) Addison Rae (laughs) doing her Lady Gaga paparazzi VMAs look. Like, I was gagged. I do kind of um, unfortunately
4: agree that was a winner costume, but all that is to say, Halloween is over now and we are entering the holidays. You, did you, did you just like flip a switch and now like Mariah Carey Christmas is playing? Or maybe probably Kelly Clarkson, knowing you.
3: You, you know me well, (laughs) I like first thing tomorrow, I will be listening to Kelly Clarkson's Christmas album. Although, you know what? Maybe I should take some learnings from Halloween and pace myself, but it's fine because I'm going to be very busy over the next couple weeks. Anyway, I am about to start moving back to New York. I um, have a new apartment here. I'm flying back to LA tomorrow to start packing up my stuff, and I'll be back here in a couple weeks. So I'm just going to let the chips fall where they may when it comes to holiday stuff although i will be getting a christmas tree this year
4: a big old christmas tree
3: okay yes
4: we um we you know we've been uh, out and about we've had covid we've had depressive episodes and we realized that there's tons on our backlog of what we've been watching, reading, listening to, and uh, we decided to devote all of today's episode to the hot topics of the last month. Where, where do we even start? This
3: is the, the Like a Virgin October ending summit. Yeah. Um, there has been a lot going on in culture, and we... Fran, you and I have not even seen each other this month except for... <laughs> once to record an episode um, that will be coming next week um, on Indie Sleaze. So you all should be very excited about that. And then there was the time that you brought me soup when I was sick, but I only talked to you through the door. Yes, we did not physically see each other. Now is finally the time to come together, talk about the things that all the girlies are talking about. I think I would say top of my list is we now have both seen Tar. Uh. And tar is the name on everybody's lips
4: it really is like and and it feels like it's going to be an ongoing conversation as we enter awards season but damn this movie was good rose like you primed me obviously everyone has primed me but this was like such an incredible movie
3: and you know it was two and a half hours long i did not pee once i did not have (laughs) to pee i was enthralled the whole time. I never felt antsy. It did not feel overly long. I was enthralled throughout the entirety of it. I want to see it again. You know, I didn't want to lead with the negative, but I actually will just... But you will. I'm gonna, yeah, but I will, and I'm gonna get it
4: out of the way because it's on what you just mentioned. You know, the length to me is 100% earned, but I did walk out of this film feeling like there were uh, many parts that were undeniably boring because of the length of the cuts. I, I believe the longest scene in this movie without a cut is like 10 or 11 minutes. It's like, it's that, um, uh, the scene in the lecture hall, no spoilers. Oh, that's so incredible. Such an incredible scene. Um, and I I think when I walked out, I was kind of like, oh, this movie was like kind of up its own ass and like... It was, like, you know, way too long, and, like, these are the... Th- I, like, kind of walked out of it feeling like I didn't love the movie, and I also don't like the ending, but as I sat with it and digested it, um, I think 24 hours later, I was like, wait, like, the mundanity that I was feeling watching some of these scenes was actually part of the brilliance, because... For example, I guess, like, I can spoil this. The first. We're, war- no, we,
3: we're, spoiling. Yo, we're well, we spoiling. We need think? to do spoilers. You yeah. think?
4: Everyone's Girl. seen it by now?
3: Okay, yeah. Okay. We'll spoil. Out. It's been out.
4: Phoebe's like, I'm going to mute you. <laughs> I, I don't want it spoiled. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing that makes this movie brilliant is that it is a perfect and very truthful character study. And Lydia Tarr is mm-hmm. so lived in and such a real character that she actually by the end of the movie, you're like, this is a real woman. This is a real woman in twenty twenty two and I, I'm going to go like consume more Lydia Tar. <laughs> um
3: yeah, like, I truly culture. believe that she exists in the world. Like, I would go to Spotify and type in Lydia Tarr, expecting to find her entire discography. I'm I'm really surprised you didn't like the ending because mm. I loved the ending. I walked out of the theater cackling because the ending was just so abrupt and hilarious and perfect. Mm.
4: Okay, well, I mean, I have nuanced thoughts on it, but the first four minutes of the movie uh, is... Lydia Tarr, literally at a New Yorker talk with Adam Gopnik, which is hilarious. And, um, it's just him listing off every single one of her credits and the camera is not moving. Okay. The the credits are being listed. I am sitting watching this at BAM. Okay. So like, it almost <laughs> feels like I'm at there. the New Yorker talk and, and, and I would get bored at a New Yorker talk, and in the first four minutes of the movie, I found myself being like, wait, how long is this gonna go? Like, wait, really? Like, this is, like, such a long—I just felt confused. But as you realize what the stylings of the movie are and how it's it's really trying to create a hyper-realism— that is so pulled off by the brilliance of Cate Blanchett, I think that truthfulness and that realness is what ended up uh, making me like the movie a lot more. Um, but okay, let's talk about the ending, if we're going to talk about the ending. I thought that that truthfulness presented a very complex villain
3: slash bully. Like, she, she's basically like a lesbian douchebag, Right. Yeah, I love that she refers to herself as a U-Haul lesbian in the first 20 minutes of the movie. She is a genius U-Haul lesbian. And at no point do you doubt that she's a genius.
4: Like, that, I think, is something that's very well portrayed. And so when you see the kind of ways that she is abusive, manipulative, not in the right mind, taking advantage of, like, her clout and power. Like, she's a woman who is obsessed with power you as an audience member might find yourself forgiving her because she is so brilliant. Um, and I think that what I loved about the entirety of her kind of cancellation, because this character is essentially cancelled for reasons she too. you'll find out, she's she, she too'd, Um, When you walk away from the movie, de- depending on who you are, you're going to have a very different assessment of whether you think Lydia Tarr got what she deserved or not, right? And the reason I didn't like the ending is because I felt that it had an opinion on the fate of Lydia Tarr.
3: And I didn't. And what do you think
4: that opinion is? I felt the opinion was that she got what she deserved. And I was kind of like, I mean, yes, sure. But I also was kind of like, the whole movie was presenting the truth. And then all of a sudden, I got this kind of very ham fisted, like. And then she's got this chicken shit gig at the end. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, uh, I don't know about this. And I also like didn't like that it was like a like a sci-fi like immersive experience in like Cambodia I or thought whatever. That
3: was so that was so perfect though, because it shows how far she's fallen. And I do still think it is. I, I like what you're saying about how the movie tries to provide this objective truth about yeah. her life and about what happens. And I do think that happens at the ending. I think maybe what it does more than provide a judgment is it kind of tricks you a little bit Hmm. because it shows that even though this woman has lost everything and is at her rock bottom, she still is so... Full of herself and still so believes her own mythology Mm. that she's treating this chicken shit gig like she is still, Mm. you know, doing the best work of her life. And it's only that one second at the ending when you realize how far she's fallen. And I just fucking loved that.
4: Yeah, I didn't. But the thing is, like, part of me was rooting for Lydia. I was like, maybe part of me was rooting for Lydia a little bit. How fucked up is that? But I think that... even though
3: she drove a woman to suicide,
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, but that's the thing. No, it like, do,
3: it does make you root for Lydia. Like it does. It is her movie. It's you, and that is, I think, why it's so masterful. Mm. Is you know from the beginning that this is a bad person, and yet you are still right there with her throughout the whole movie. And it, you know, we there. There is this whole genre today of, you know, like, the the good for her movie, the, you know, women doing bad things, complicated female characters, and this, I definitely think, is part of the, you know, the canon of that, but it it complicates it because this is not a woman doing a bad thing to people who deserve it, it's just a woman doing bad things, and yet we still love her. Yeah. And I think, like, I think that's probably part of the reason why she was queer. Like, obviously, her queerness is a function of the way that she's enabled to enact harm. But I think introducing her as a lesbian so early in the film, like, you know, a coastal elite liberal audience is like, yes, oh my god, like, a movie about a lesbian. We love her. yeah, And then, like, She's fucking Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, the well, she's not Harvey Weinstein, right?
4: She's Not Harvey she, Weinstein, she, but she's she is you know. someone who had a, a who's had you know a lifetime of like manipulative behavior, and then one infraction that we've seen that is absolutely damning, right? And I think that that is like kind of what I'm getting at is that um, I I would have I I wish that there was an ending that was, like, more complicated, right? Where she maybe had a victory and also a failure or something. Honestly, because I liked the movie so much and I felt so not okay about the ending, uh, I'm just being kind of esoteric and fanny about what I wanted to see about the film. But, like, I think that's something... Okay. I wanted to see her strap, because you know Lydia (laughs) Tar's dick is big. Uh, A better, A a longer sex scene would have been nice. I will say, virgins, if you're going to go see this movie... I would advocate for you to, one, know that it is really funny. Like, the audience at BAM wanted this to be you know, a fucking serious movie and no one would laugh at the jokes. There was one other faggot on the other end of the theater that was like laughing at like, you know, EGOT or like, I, uh, hello, I am Petra's father. I was like, genius. Like there's so many lines. That like, was such an incredible scene. Incredible scene. Um, But I I don't know. Um, The only other part that I didn't like, literally the only other thing that I didn't like about the movie was this lecture hall scene where her student says, as a BIPOC gender. I was like, girl, like the whole movie is so real. This You don't you don't think that's real? There's no one in their right mind who would say as a BIPOC pangender, because it is one, like no person of color says like BIPOC like that outside of like a like corporate setting in my opinion, and also it's an incorrect use of the word pangender because pangender is like, they nounified it. So I was just like, because the the script was so real and they were such real characters, that was a moment where I was like, there's a very easy way to paint a character that like doesn't really know what they're talking about in a space of social justice. But BIPOC pangender just felt like that was another moment where I was like, "Mm, this script has an opinion on this person.
3: You know I get I mean. that the language is clunky, but that scene felt incredibly real. The scene is and incredible. Love it, this The scene. scene is incredible. And even with the sort of clunkiness of the language, that just felt very truthful to me. I agree. Of the, of the way that some people do weaponize their marginalized identities. Oh,
4: yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Everything about, I have to clarify, everything about the scene worked for me, with the exception of that line. Like, I I really like the movie is a 10 out of 10 for me. And my notes are on the ending and that one line,
3: really. I also was thinking a lot about how there's that movie she said coming out that's, like, literally about Harvey Weinstein and the way that the story was broken. And it it stars Carey Mulligan. And it just looks so, like... Ugh, it's such an eye roll. Like mm-hmm. it's going to be very um that movie that came out a couple years ago that was about Megyn Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, And it just made me think of we're now this award season going to have these two films that are both dealing with the idea of me too and like cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And one of them, Tar did it in this very artful way that was very much a character story. And the other one is going to do it in this very, obvious way that is very you know like sensationalist and Mm. i will just always want the art i will always want the character and i think this deep portrait of this very flawed abusive woman is so much more illustrative of what's wrong in our culture than i think this like I mean, obviously I haven't seen it, but this bombastic, like, you know, ripped from the headlines, like, Mm self-righteous movie could ever be.
4: Right, because those movies have, like, a kind of right and wrong dichotomy with, like, clear lines on who the film is rooting for. And I just think that there should be more movies like Tar that are not trying to force you to root for a specific side. And I, when I, I, like, as I said, at the beginning, I walked out of this film and I didn't love how I felt. And I, part of what I was processing was I thought that the movie was very muddled in what it was trying to say. I was like, I don't really get what it's trying to say about cancel culture. And because cancel culture is such a hot button issue, of course I was like trying so hard to examine it. And then a day later I was like, Oh no, no. Like it's not trying to say anything. Like, it's, yeah. that is why it's so good. Like, it mm-hmm. actually is is presenting to you a situation and letting you decide how you feel about it. Um, and I think that more films should do that, especially with something like cancel culture that is so flattened in every other area of our lives yeah. that we consume it.
3: Yeah, and told this story, and was still a beautiful movie. Yes. Like, I loved how bleak and colorless it was mm. it was so Berlin it, it reminded me a lot of Suspiria which I just did my annual rewatch of I do think they exist in the same cinematic universe mm-hmm. um the music was incredible like as someone who sometimes dabbles a little bit in in classical music like I just I really appreciated it um and Lydia Tar, I hope she's on my Spotify wrapped this year
5: Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
5: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
3: Speaking of music, I finally listened to an album today that you had told me that you'd been listening to and really loved, which was Willow's new album. (gasps) You Um, listened! And I I know you were excited to talk about it. Yes. Um, And I really enjoyed it.
4: Uh, Let me tell you, I enjoyed the new Willow album... More than Carly Rae and Taylor combined. Like, obviously they're presenting very different things and shouldn't be compared. But, like, I'm just saying that's how much I loved this album. Um, Because Taylor and Carly, like, are my queens. This is essentially, I don't know how you would describe it, Rose. But I I would call it a kind of, like, punk, maybe, like, emo metal revivalist album.
3: It has all of those elements. It yeah. also at times is a little bit industrial. Yeah. There's some new wave influence on it. But um, she's yeah, still all, all those things. But she
4: still has really sweet, really um like smooth, at times R and B, at times pop vocals that elevate it and pay homage to references like, you know, the Paramours and yeah, the Machine Gun Person, Av- Avril Lavigne's, you know, to me, like, I remember when we first talked about the Olivia Rodrigo album, you know, a year ago, I said that my favorite songs were the songs like Brutal and Good for You that went all the way in the Avril Levine territory and committed to it and that I wished the rest of the album was like that. To me, this album did what I esoterically wanted Olivia Rodrigo to do. And love Demi Lovato for, like, giving homage to that moment or, like, other people that have been trying to do, like, the kind of punk revival thing. But this was it for me. It is so pretty. Well,
3: because I think Willow goes even further than, you know, the people that were referencing as sort of the punk revival. Mm -hmm. Like, she's not even really referencing Avril Lavigne. She's referencing the people that Avril Lavigne and Paramore were referencing. Exactly. She's going going directly to the source. She's drinking straight from the tap. This is punk filtered through pop um, in a real way and not this sort of, like, double reblog that we're seeing a lot of the girlies doing nowadays mm,
4: that's such a good point and also like on top of that I do believe Willow has been dabbling in making punk music for a while like I think she's she's released like punk tracks before maybe even Olivia Rodrigo did but this is her first like album dedicated to a genre of music that she clearly has so much respect for and I think that it was the respect that i that i heard i heard yeah. like so much love and adoration for a genre that to me hasn't been around for a while
3: you know and it's it's so well crafted the production is really amazing I love, love the way the that her vocals are layered and distorted oh, so and good. just the like wall of sound that exists on a lot of the songs um, some of the standouts for me were Split which was probably my favorite song on the album that, um, perfectly not close to me which has Eve's tumor on it um, which was great and that and one's a little also,
4: techno-y a little housey. yeah
3: it's a little of. it's a little industrial mm-hmm. which I love Love, right. um, and then hover like a goddess. I thought love was really great that too. Song. It it did also remind me, um, of Halsey's album mm. that she put out last year, which was one of my favorites. Um, an, an album I if did I can't not if I can't have love, I want power, which I really enjoyed. Uh, yeah, I I've been really surprised by Willow, you know, so much over the past couple years. I think she's making. Really good music, working with the right people, you know, has the right references, has this prolific output of music. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really cool that she can be an artist who has a song go viral in the way that Meet Me at Our Spot did and, like, be at the forefront of culture in that way. But, like, still, like, really double down on making the kind of music that she wants to make.
4: Exactly. And, like, I... Also, as someone who's been listening to Willow for a while, I think this is her first, like, No Skips album. Like, uh, or rather totally. for me. Like, I thought it was No Skips. I loved all of the tracks that you listed. I also loved Curious slash Furious. I love the, the last song, Batshit. Like, it reminded me a little bit, obviously completely different, but, like, I, it did remind me of Sleigh Bells, too, in that the balance of metal with like really sweet vocal vocals and really gorgeous distortion championing, you know, a woman's voice on the track and uh I just like want more like this. I'm just so and I, it's I such really, a gift.
3: I really like that we're hearing artists like Willow and even Taylor on Midnight's emote in their music. Like that's one of the things that I love about, you know, rock and and punk music is You know, when the sound becomes a scream and Willow really wails on some of these songs. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the parts of Midnight's that I liked the most is when you could hear the pain in Taylor's voice like on would have, could have, should have said, give me back my girlhood. It was mine first. That's really effective in music when you can hear the emotion rather than just you know, having to parse it yourself from a lyric. Yeah, um,
4: the emotional quality. And I thought Willow
3: did that so well.
4: It brings it all the way home. And I honestly feel like it's not getting, it's due. Like everyone should be listening to and talking about this fucking album. It's so good. Um Maybe an album that does not have as much of an emotional quality. Uh Did you, did you listen to the new Carly Rae album by chance?
3: I did. I've listened to it once, kind of in the background while I was reading. I haven't given it a closer listen. It's, you know, Carly is kind of still making the same music. I could recognize that there were a couple songs that I listened to that I liked more than others, Mm -hmm. but it just, I just didn't feel moved to listen again. And I'm sure it will be something that is on the rotation of things that I put on in the background. But, and, you know, not to to start with the negatives, and, like, I love Carly, I love Emotion, I even really like a lot of Dedicated, but Carly just kind of makes the same song over and over again.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm feeling the repetitiveness too. And the thing about emotion and part of the reason it was so sublime was because before that moment, Carly was just the call me maybe girl, right? She was making trash music. Well, trash, according to some music that felt like Disney Channel-esque, right? And then she was like, let me tap all of these exquisite producers, all these producers that I admire and see what they can do with my sound. And as a songwriter, I think that's like an incredible thing for her to do. And so emotion felt like such a triumph because it was such an elevation of what Carly was able to give. And these other two albums feel like kind of like Midnight's as well. Uh, the B-sides of the B-sides, right? Like, these were, like, Mm -hmm. C-sides to me. And, like, Carly and Taylor share the proliferation component, right? Like, I think she wrote, like, 200 songs for Emotion. Yeah, she kind of always does. She is very Dolly-esque. And I, I think that that can be a wonderful thing, but also part of the weakness here is that there's too much material and not enough focus on defining what exactly these songs want to say. And... I I just, ugh, I want her to give me what I want. I love the Rufus Wainwright song, though. But I, the
3: thing uh, is, I don't even really know what I want from Carly, because I think the problem is that at the end of the day, I do want more emotion, and yeah. she keeps trying to replicate it. So, like, in a way, she's giving me what I want. It's just not really working, because I already got the best of it.
4: My theory, my theory on that, honestly, is like, so, uh, Carly does have a really emotional quality to her voice, yes, but she, her voice is still very thin, right? She's not a vocalist. She can't yeah. do what a Taylor can do or what a Willow can do. I mean, those, I'm only mentioning those because they're the last two people that we talked about. They're not really in any sort of category together. They're not vocalists. But it, just because they're the conversations of, of what we were talking about, I'm just like, her voice is just thin. It doesn't have that magnanimousness. And when you, if you ever see her perform on stage, she just kind of like, Jumps around and it's like, cool, we love you. But like, I was like, oh, you know what? I like listened to this album and I was like, you know what it is? Carly doesn't have a personality. And yeah, she doesn't have a
3: personality or an aesthetic or anything.
4: And because we there, we don't have the complete package of who she is as a pop star. We as audiences aren't able to place her. Aren't able to place her, or, pl- or we're, and we're not able to supplant meaning, more meaning, or and more personableness and relatableness into her music because we don't really know that much about her. Um, and I don't know, I that's not really that's kind of, a, I feel kind of mean saying that, but I, I do feel like it's a management issue. Like you and I, I don't remember where we were, but like we were like in an Uber or something, and you were like, if you could manage like. One, you know, one person. And, yeah, like, if
3: you could creative direct one pop one pop star or, who really needs celebrity to, who yeah, would it be someone
4: who really needs to get it together. I mean, Carly maybe would be that girl because she makes really good music, and I just don't think that she showed us a point of view behind this kind of like I'm an awkward. Lonely, little weird girl. and I fall in love sometimes, too. And I'm like, okay, yeah, even
3: emotion, which is one of the best pop albums yeah. of this millennium, has no aesthetic, yeah, has no good no. music videos. The album cover is stupid. Yeah, it just happens to have incredible music incredible on it.
4: Incredible music. Um, so I want the world. I want her to world build. and i I hope that the next, you know, album cycle is that for her.
5: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and two-door cinema club. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems
2: promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get
4: fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers.
2: And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
3: Let's talk about Interview with the Vampire. Um, Did you watch this week's episode?
4: I actually didn't finish. Um, I want to hear what you think so far and then I'll kind of go into how I was digesting this last episode.
3: I love it. It's my favorite show on TV now that House of the Dragon is over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next week is the season finale and I like literally don't know what I'm going to do with my life without it. I just keep being impressed with the way it is adapting the source material and the choices it's making and how it is reinterpreting the original story and preserving the things that work and changing the things that don't and recontextualizing things like I as hard as it is to watch I think giving Lestat and Louis relationship the proper context of a truly abusive relationship Mm works really well because Mm -hmm. it's not something that's ever been explored Mm. with this kind of depth before Mm. and it is hard to watch it you know like this week's episode was really hard to watch Mm. louis go back to his abuser Mm -hmm. but it that's real felt very it felt very real to me and it's something that has like long gone unsaid in the way that their relationship has been talked about. Like, yes, people always say that they're toxic, but it's abusive. And it it does, I think, what fantasy should do, which is, like, take a, a real-life dynamic and exaggerate it through the lens of fiction. Because if you had an abusive partner who had superpowers, this shows us what might happen in those circumstances. I also really love this depiction of Claudia. Mm. And I, Claudia has always been my favorite character in Interview with the Vampire. Um, And I think the choice to make her a teenager is so interesting because yes, there is so much tragedy in Claudia being a woman trapped in a child's body and that is tragic. But I think making her a teenager so she knows what she's missing out on she is on the cusp of womanhood she can have those experiences and be even further away from them is so it is such an emotional gut punch mm. and it doesn't i'm not saying it's better than the original but it's a, and it's incredibly satisfying in its, you know, um like devastation, um take on that character mm. and just it makes sense. This reboot makes sense. Like there is a reason to be retelling the story in a new way and that's what I love so much about this version of it is that it truly is adapting and updating and playing with the source material in a way that makes it more relevant to the time that it's speaking to mm. and the time that it's being consumed in
4: the the reboot really does justify itself. Like it this material needed further exploration and adapting. And I also much prefer the way this Claudia is written, um as much as I love Kiki. Uh, i I think for me, what I realized um watching this most recent half of this most recent episode, was that um, my the fact that I don't have an attachment to the source material is part of the reason I am falling off a little bit. And I think that if I was invested from square one in the original story, which I don't really know anything about, I did not Google the full plot of the OG interview with a vampire, vampire, right? Like, I didn't read the full plot summary. I only know the basics, so I don't know as much about what's been changed and what hasn't. So you describing that, like, and placing, like, some of these things that have been changed actually makes me appreciate it even more. I think that just the bones of the plot are not my tea. Like, and I, and that's not, you know, the move, the, the show's fault, right? Like, I don't think fatherhood is an interesting theme in anything. Like, I don't want to watch things about fatherhood. I don't want to watch things really about children, I think this Claudia, as you said, is amazing. And I do like the teen, the teendom of her is, is definitely compelling. And this actress is really compelling. Um, but I, Lestat is so irredeemably abusive. I I just wish that he was, I wish there was a little more subtlety on him, and a little less subtlety on Louis, because Louis, to me, I feel like a lot of time, not all the time, obviously, but a lot of times things are just happening to him. Like, I I wish that he made more choices in the show instead of being so beholden to Lestat's ongoing abuse, manipulation, twists, and turns. And with Lestat, I wish that he, I'm, I'm okay with all of the things that, you know, all the way, all the ways that he's abusing Louie, like, yes, that's like a real person, but I just like wish that there was a little more restraint on how insidious and how amoral he is. Like, I, I wanted, I want redemption from him beyond how hot he is. And for me, the only thing that redeems him is how hot and romantic he is. And I I don't know that. And that would be enough for me if there was more subtlety to his character.
3: You know, I see what you're saying. I think it's interesting that you say that Louis doesn't make choices when I actually think he makes a lot of choices. No, I said I mean, he the- makes
4: he doesn't make as many choices as I would like. I didn't say he makes zero choices.
3: Yeah, because I do think Louis is a character who's driven by the choices he makes. I mean, his choice not to drink human blood is what defines him and is Mm. the big, the huge schism um, in his relationship with Lestat and even with Claudia. Um, And then with the Lestat of it all, I get what you're saying. I actually don't, I actually prefer him as a character who can't be redeemed because you know what this season is all building towards and like the spoiler alert, Mm. but like, this isn't a spoiler, Mm. Um, you know, in the, the finale um, is leading to Claudia's attempt to kill Lestat. Mm. And I actually think the way that Lestat is being depicted and his abuse of Louis so much more gives, gives such a clearer reasoning for Claudia to want to kill him, because in the novel and in the 1994 film, you know, we're led to understand that Claudia wants to kill him because Lestat is a liar, and because he won't tell them about the, you know, their origins and other vampires, and because he kind of sees them as his playthings, rather than they truly need to escape him, and he won't allow them to. I mean, there's this devastating scene at the end of the most recent episode that I guess you didn't see, where Claudia is trying to, she, you know, she's, like, going off on her own to get away, and Lestat tracks her down and and says, like, you can't have your own life because I need you here to make Louis happy, and, mm. like, it, how, how much of a monster Lestat is justifies the fact that they're going to attempt to murder him, and, you know, these things are all happening for a reason. Um there was also a reveal about Rashid um at the end of this week's episode that was um he's Louis's like personal assistant. Okay.
4: Oh, um, oh, oh right right right. The one that he like also sucks on.
3: Yes. Yep. Um and it's I don't know where they're going with it. There's lot there's plenty of theories and people who know more about the Anne Rice universe might have Better ideas about it. But I just am so enthralled by this show. I'm so happy that, you know, it was renewed for a second season before the first season even started. Mm. So we're getting more. There's also um, the Mayfair Witches series that begins, I believe, in January. So they are building out this um, immortal universe with um, all the different Anne Rice properties. And I'm just very excited to see where we go from here. And I have been reading Lestat Louis fan fiction. Of course, you have. Uh, no surprises have. there. Yep, no um, surprises.
4: Um, will you be watching a Bobby Cannavale fan fiction after uh, consuming The Watcher <laughs> on Netflix?
3: No, but I did. I was so I've only watched like four or five episodes of The Watcher. I've been watching it um, with Ryan. Can a I? Can I suggest a, uh, not
4: watching more than four or five episodes? <laughs> Honestly.
3: Um, but I, I did uh, I did ask Ryan, because um, we both think Bobby Cannavale is really sexy. I asked Ryan if he would murder Rose Byrne if he got to suck off Bobby Cannavale. And he said yes without hesitation. I said, but what if... Spy 2 was already in pre-production and then he <gasps> said no because we couldn't we couldn't keep Rose Byrne from being in Spy 2. No,
4: we need Spy 2. We need Spy 2. Um what else what what other impressions you have on like the series in general? I mean, it's so it's on to me like having finished it,
3: I I feel like it's so um not good. Um, yeah, I I, I I, don't know that I'm going to finish it. I don't know if I'm going to watch it outside of the context of watching it with Ryan and kind of, like, giggling through it. Yeah, it's giggleable. Um, I did read the New York Magazine article that it's based off of oh. because I kind of wanted the real-life context of it and also I wanted to spoil myself and see how it was going to end. Um, and what I found very frustrating is that the mystery is unsolved. Mm. Um, So I do... I mean, we don't have to necessarily spoil it for the virgins. You don't have to get into specifics. But it is a limited series. Is there a definitive ending? Is The Watcher unveiled? (sighs) No. That, I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. It is such
4: a... it It makes the whole show feel like such a colossal waste of time because it's not even very well written. Like to me, Ryan Murphy saw white Lotus and was like, there is an American horror story version of this. And that's why he started to work on the watcher. He probably also watched, you know, the undoing or, you know, fucking the staircase or something like that. Like, yeah,
3: it's, it's there. There is a clear um, context that, that the show is sitting within there. There is a trend that it is, that it is hopping on. For sure,
4: yeah. So to me, that the show is very watchable, like no pun intended, totally. um, and that, but that is because of I think the casting is amazing. Like Bobby Cannavale, yeah. Margot Martindale, Jennifer Coolidge is really good. Mia Farrow. When was the last time you know we got to see the diva um,
3: doll herself? Yes,
4: uh, Mia Farrow, which and also Noma Dumezweni
3: was, was Hermione in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child.
4: Yes, and she is to me, the best character in The Undoing as well.
3: Um, I, what I like about the show is that I think it um, is a really good depiction of, uh, you know, this, like, modern, you know, American horror, which is the horror of living outside your means Mm. and what Mm. that can lead to. Because, you know, we see this family, you know, buying this house that they can't afford and then they're stuck there mm. i mean <laughs> to be fair that also literally is the plot of american horror story season one mm. murder house like yeah, they're, living in a ha- they're living in a haunted house that they can't afford to move out of <laughs> um you know the casting is amazing um I-, I think casting mia Farrow is genius because of the rosemary's baby of it all yeah. because you know, this is essentially the plot of Rosemary's Baby. Mm, Um, It is? I've never seen it. Oh, yeah. Rosemary's Baby is about, you know, this woman who... You know, moves into an apartment with her husband, and they have all these creepy neighbors, and their oh. secret passages, and like, pe- I mean, obviously, like that is like literally satanic, and like she's impregnated, like raped, and like impregnated with the the Antichrist. Oh, but it's like very obvious why she was cast because of all those parallels, and I think in the ep- the couple episodes that I've watched, I think she's criminally underused. Yes,
4: and uh, also like she deserves. A show that's better written than this. I'm sorry. Like I know Ryan Murphy can kind of get whoever he wants, but like Mia Farrow is so she needs to do more things. And I don't know. This was a I don't
3: understand energy. why th- the their bed is in the, the middle of their bedroom. It's <laughs> so confusing to me. So also, heinous. Naomi Watts never wears the same thing twice. She has so many fucking chunky. You know, n- alpaca sweaters and like duster coats, and I mean, she looks great. Can
4: you explain? I to me... I want her
3: entire wardrobe.
4: Can you explain to me why girls, why the girls love Naomi Watts? Like, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't know any. I've only seen her in King Kong, and I think that's it.
3: Uh, she is sort of, um, she's blonde. She has a She's that going blonde. For her. She's she's like um she's like a Nicole Kidman variant. Okay. She, you know, I think she, they came up around similar times. And Naomi Watts has so she's funny. kind of one of the if you know you know girls. Actually, Who Weekly talked about her recently because they were talking about The Watcher and and like they understand celebrity culture mm-hmm. in a way that I never will. So I would definitely suggest like listening to their take on the Naomi Watts of it all. I think she's just a very good actress. She's a pretty white blonde woman. Yeah. She was in The Ring. It is kind of crazy that The Ring is the thing that she's the most famous for. I, like, on a on a sort of mainstream mass appeal level.
4: I've seen The Ring, and I did not know she was in that. Oops.
3: Yeah, that's but it, her. that wasn't,
4: like, in high school, so I'll forgive yeah. myself for that. I um,
3: want to chew Bobby Cannavale's eyebrows off his face in a sexual way. Uh, he is so... Hot! That sounds hard. I mean, he, and he's also an an
4: incredible actor. Like, yeah, he's a great actor. So, I saw so him,
3: good. he and Rose Byrne, who is his wife, they did a production of Medea at BAM a couple years ago where they, they played the main characters. And mm. it was so good. And, like, they were so amazing on stage together. One of the things that I didn't understand, okay, so the episode where the daughter, like, goes live on TikTok yeah. and... And and you know spins this conflict that's happening between her father and her boyfriend mm-hmm. into like into her father being racist. Is she an influencer? Like, why did why did it go viral? Why does his assistant come in and with the phone? Like, is this your daughter? Like, what? I, I don't get that. No,
4: I I don't. She's not an influencer. I think it just went viral. Like, I think she went viral as a normie, which like nobody writes. I've I've actually I have yet to see. A depiction of someone going viral that I felt was like effective or like added to the story. Like I, I I'm trying. I mean, maybe that I don't know. I'm trying to think of other, but like I just like it's. It just a lot of times when things are written like that, I'm like, this is some. This is written by someone who doesn't use social media. Like I, I just I don't get it. Um, but the <sighs> but I that on top of that, to your point, like that is like one of like many many inconsistencies in how the plot unfolds. And something that's amazing is that. Um, the casting is great and everyone is a suspect. So that Mm -hmm. does create a very playful and fun viewing experience where you're trying to figure out who it is.
3: Yes. Every time a new character is introduced, I'm like, yep, they're in on it. She's in on it. He's in on it.
4: Yes. And I think that's great. It's just, um, it's infuriating that there's, there's no, there's no reveal.
3: (laughs) I, yeah I was I was reading that New York magazine article like oh my god this is so long I can't wait till the end when they reveal who it is and then there's no reveal the show also fabricates
4: like a large majority of the things that happened in the actual show which is fine I'm fine with that but it, it must be said yeah um, ba-
3: I mean based on the the article that I read really the only thing that happened was the letters the letters that's, that's the entirety of what happened to them <laughs>
4: yeah it's it's kind of cuckoo
1: from BBC Radio 4 Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a
5: road trip I thought in that moment oh my god we've summoned something from this board this
1: is Uncanny USA
5: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. The best
2: conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
5: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor.
2: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
5: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen,
3: ok. So I, I now I think is kind of the part where two two roads diverge, and we're maybe going to talk about some things that we've each been consuming on our own mm, okay. um i've seen some theater recently Loved that i the w- just would like to to talk about briefly i did mention that i am pretty sure that i got covid at hadestown which i saw a couple weeks ago um i thought hadestown sucked so much <laughs> and it has been such a cultural phenomenon over the past couple years, it's like one of those pieces of theater that has really crossed over into the mainstream, and like I understand why that is because it, because it is kind of the show that tricks normal people into thinking that they're watching something really deep, mm. and it just isn't. Like I, hate that. I did not feel anything while watching it. There, I did not feel a single emotion, and that's it, such a failure for anyone who doesn't know Hades Town is about you know the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice um but also it kind of isn't it you know places the myth in this sort of like steampunk like 1920s esque context it's like post industrial um and it almost like can't decide if it wants to be literally about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice and you know, Hades and Persephone and these mythological characters, or if it wants to be this like, you know, like workshoppy ass, like Tumblr musical. It's so Tumblr. All the music was very forgettable. I just like really did not enjoy it. Um do not recommend. Um and then last week I saw Weathering Heights at St. Anne's Warehouse, um, which Had kind of similar vibes, like very deconstructed. Mm. Um, So it's like,
4: are you saying it's like vaudevillian? Like you can see the pieces of the theater and like it's, it's you know, it's it's like black box theater. It's like,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you know, there's like a door that's rolled on stage and, you know, there's like puppets and, um, all of the the like chorus members play multiple characters or like the same actor plays a father and a son at different points in their lives. Um, the main issue with it is that it fails at the basic responsibility of what a musical is supposed to do mm. in musicals. Characters sing because they feel an emotion so deeply that they can no longer say it. They have to sing it. Mm. And, This show does not do that. Emma Rice, who adapted Wuthering Heights into this production and directed it, was clearly very passionate about maintaining Bronte's words. Mm. But I think it's too faithful of an adaptation because the characters speak lines of dialogue lifted directly from the novel, but they speak them. And then... A scene later, they sing a song that has nothing to do with what they were just talking about. Like, when Kathy says, I am Heathcliff, this, like, iconic line of dialogue that is one of the best ways in literature anyone has ever written, you know, the idea of loving someone so much that you feel like you are them. Yeah. It is so integral to her character. That should have been a song. I am Heathcliff yeah. should have been sung. And instead... She says it, and then a scene later, she picks up a microphone like she's in Spring Awakening and sings a rock song that has nothing to do with anything she's been saying, and just feels like someone wrote a play, and then at the end they were like, "Oh, let's put music in it."
4: That's such a missed opportunity because, like, with with both Wuthering Heights and with, um, you know, Orpheus and Eurydice, like these are two; uh, those are these are tragic stories and with RVS and Eurydice there's so much room to play with nailing down and describing what that tragedy feels like and similarly with Wuthering Heights it's like even though you know Bronte has so much on the page that we can read like that is a moment where it's like it's a song and damn that's that's really disappointing
3: yeah and it just made me wish it had been a Kate Bush jukebox musical really should have been. been I don't know why it it wasn't um Also, it did remind me a lot of the sort of deconstructedness and, like, workshoppiness of it reminded me a lot of The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is a play based on a novel by Neil Gaiman that has sort of a similar staging and also uses music, but uses music, you know, in scene changes. Like, also kind of in the way that Harry Potter and the Cursed Child does, you know, Imogen Heap wrote this entire score for that show, and it uses music without calling itself a musical. And I think this show would have been much better if it had done that. And I still really like the staging. Um, The second act was much better than the first act. The first, the show is three hours and the, the first act felt like it was three hours long because the first act ends with Kathy dying. And it's like, okay, well, if you decide that that's how the first act ends, it's up to you to edit things out so that you're not just like going through the story up until that point and it feeling like a hundred years long, but I still enjoyed myself. I had a good time. It was nice to be at the theater.
4: I love, I love a term you've coined, which is workshoppy. That is such a good way to describe a lot of things, especially on the stage. Like I would much prefer something that feels workshoppy, unfinished or imperfect, like doesn't quite say what it wants to say, but at least it tries over something that you know tried too hard to be perfect and polished, and ultimately didn't try anything, you know. But like, this sounds like it wasn't very successful, and so
3: hmm. it made a lot of choices, yeah. and the just a, a very a, a lot of them were were wrong.
4: A lot of them. We're wrong.
3: What have you been um, engaging in that I have not been privy to?
4: Well, I am watching this current season of Great British baking Show and I don't have much to report on because it's not a short it's not a show really to report on. Um, but uh, they had this for the very first time they had Mexico week, which really was incredible. It exceeded all of my expectations and was such an exceptional episode of, like, reality TV, and, you know, anyone that's on Twitter saw the clips that were, you know, out there, um, this amazing contestant calling guacamole, glocky molo, (laughs) I felt like joy filled, filling to the brim of my heart, watching a bunch of white people and non-Latin people attempt to understand Mexican cuisine, um, Cultural appropriation is good again. That's what I'm trying to say. We <laughs> we as a society need to create more things wherein white people are struggling to master <laughs> the thing the things that don't belong to them, right? This is one of those. I think there, I don't I didn't really see any very serious discourse about it, but I know that there are people out there that are like, canceled Mexico week. How dare you? Great British baking show. And I was like, actually, like. The show was very aware of what it was doing and flexed on what it's good at which is kind of portraying lovable nincompoops. Like like really like that that's at the end of the day what it was and I really I that
3: love the I love the word nincompoop.
4: They it really and nincompoop is the is the word. Um I will say just on a whole the the uh, ca- the contestants where we're at now. I really hope that Maxi is the winner and that she beats out Yanoush, who was kind of the the judge's favorite and the one that's most technically perfect. There's always one guy that's like a robotically technically perfect baker and it's so soulless and yet he wins every challenge and I don't want it to be him. But there's this man on the show that is also going to be in the top three, in my opinion, named Sandro. You've seen pictures of Sandro, haven't you? I have not. Oh my God, wait. I actually, we need the live react right now of Rose seeing images of sandra from great british and to be
3: clear i will watch the show over the past couple years i've watched every season i just prefer to watch it all at once and and not week to week Mm. um oh wow he is so fucking fine and
4: he's also huge
3: oh my god
4: he's a huge man and he's an exquisite baker
3: uh, his hand, his hands look uh, very large. Oh,
4: so large. Anyways, we're rooting for you, Sandro. Um, Okay, what else have I been consuming? Oh, oh, okay, this is good. Uh, a good callback to our Stephen King episode. I finally watched Carrie. The, the, o- the original, the, the Brian OG, De Palma film. Yes, the non-Chloe Grace Moretz Carrie, the only Carrie.
3: The only Carrie I recognize.
4: Yes. Um, I want to say, you know, on top of our conversation in that episode... That we failed to talk about how John Travolta's in this movie. What? I had yes, no idea. Yes, and it's very
3: sexy. Young John Travolta was really hot. So fine. And also, don't, don't cancel me, but John Travolta, since he shaved his head, is hot again. Oh my god god rose
4: that's so bad he is literally it is what it is he is one of the most powerful people in the scientology church like he has ascended to a tier of scientology he has a title i can't remember what the title is called but he shut the fuck up he has a title i can't remember the title is but the clearance that he has in the church of scientology yeah (laughs) yeah dick sucker in, in chief um He has clearance in Scientology that is so powerful that he is allowed to kill. Like, he can kill someone, and Scientology allows it as a, like, within the the architecture of their belief systems.
3: Huh, maybe I need to think more about joining the Church (laughs) of
4: Scientology. Um, Which also, like, (laughs) watching Carrie, I was like, wait, was John Travolta's, like, last, like, like, meaningful... Appearance in Hollywood
3: hairspray. I think it might have been. I
4: literally like we could pull up the IMDb. And I, what a way to go! Th- that is like it is actually incredible that his his f- his final most like known performance in the eons of a career that someone as legendary as John Travolta has had was dressing up as well. A woman it it, in a it full was tattoo. hairspray.
3: And then it was Adele Dezim,
4: <laughs> and the, oh right, Adele Dezim. He has
3: contributed so much to, <laughs> to culture. The culture. He is he is the king. <laughs> he
4: is a <the> king. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, but anyways, on the carry of it all, the thing that I just wanted to say on top of our conversation is that it's so deranged, like the the way the movie yes. <laughs> is directed, but not just like in a horrific way, like the way the movie is directed is so bizarre and every single... It's a fever dream. Yes. And and the way I would describe it is like every single character feels like they are a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown, right? Like every single character is at the absolute maximum of what they can handle at the beginning of every scene. And one single stimuli puts them over the edge. Like everyone in this movie... Not just Carrie, not just her mom, everyone is hysterical. Like, in hysterics. And I thought that that was such a funny lens on um, the story as a whole. I think there's something kind of Stephen Kingy about that. Like, I think that his characters are really... Um, extremely melodramatic. I don't even know if melodrama is the word. It's obviously um, camp in a lot of ways in its purest form. But, like, I, I was so engaged from the jump by
3: how wild and weird... This movie is like, um, I don't know that I agree that Carrie is camp, maybe Piper Laurie a little bit.
4: No, it's definitely, uh, I think if you rewatch it, I mean, like, fucking, I like, have, I have mom, rewatched
3: it, it, I have watched it many you're, times. You're
4: gonna tell me that Carrie's mom in her nightgown holding the knife up and smiling like, like crazy is like not to some extent like camp. Like, I also honestly, even in the beginning, like, um, Sissy SpaceX, like. First, like seven minutes of
3: dialogue is just like her
4: wailing. Like she has no line. She goes, "Ah!"
2: Yeah, because
3: something something truly horrifying is happening to her and she thinks she's dying. Right, but like truly post verbal, like no real
4: words. Like, I, I, and that's like kind of what I'm alluding to. Like, there's, there, it's funny how emphatic every character was like directed to be and how, I don't know, I, I thought, I just thought that that's something that made the movie so much weirder and more interesting um, to watch and I really appreciated it visually as well um, so it's great, a beautiful great, film great movie to revisit you saw Halloween ends
3: <laughs> I did I, I did try- watch Halloween ends on Peacock.
4: I, very Fran, tried watching Halloween
3: Kills. Halloween Kills is disgusting. It's <laughs> horrible.
4: Lauded. I, I, start, I watched, I, I shit you not, at least 20 minutes of it b- before realizing that there was a movie that came before this movie that I did mm-hmm. not watch. Um, yeah, it, it, it seemed really bad and boring. But um, <laughs> Kyle Richards, love.
3: Oh, Kyle was so good in Halloween Kills. She was the best part of the movie. Uh, Very underused in Halloween Ends. Mm. You know, a lot of people really don't seem to like it. I think it's it's a very quiet way to end this 45-year franchise and story. But I thought it did some interesting things with the way it carried on the idea of Michael Myers as this sort of spiritual evil mm. that has haunted Lori Strode her entire life. And in Halloween Ends, there is a character who sort of takes up Michael's legacy and you see how a normal person through a series of really tragic circumstances could become a killer. Mm. Um which I thought was interesting, and and I liked that it is a definitive ending to Laurie's story, to Michael Myers, and it's certainly not a perfect film. And I'm glad I watched it on Peacock rather than seeing it in theaters. Um, but, because yeah, it's I liked a, it.
4: It. it's a movie that you know you look at your phone
3: during, is what you're saying. Oh, totally, yeah. totally. Spoiler alert: How did they? How did oh, Myers die? J- Jamie Lee Curtis kills him. Okay, and then. Um, to make sure that he is dead once and for all, they string him up on a car and the whole town sort of like gathers and they parade through the streets and they take him to like the junkyard and put him through an industrial grinder uh- while everyone watches.
4: <laughs> That's great work. Yeah. Um, okay. And the
3: whole movie is sort of about how, you know, you're understanding how the town hates Laurie Strode because this very personal, you know, battle she's having with Michael Myers has really impacted all of them. And so it is very cathartic that they all get to watch him die. Speaking of movies, I I don't want to talk about it this week because I really want to wait to have this conversation until you've seen it. Okay. But I saw My Policeman in ah. theaters and really actually surprisingly liked it. And so we will talk about it. I want you to see it okay. oh, it also doesn't come out on Amazon I think until this Friday mm-hmm. so virgins if you want to watch it and hear our takes watch it and we'll talk about it next week Ugh, I'm, pr- I'm probably gonna like it too I'm a little bit of a hairy fan. I'm afraid I-, I think you will and it has problems it has flaws yeah. but I really liked it despite its flaws I think it's a, a lovely film that is very well acted and well made damn okay we'll talk about it Next week, we'll be back with an episode all about indie sleaze. So, um, you know, dig into your Tumblr archives, break out Mm -hmm. your American Apparel v-neck. Check to Um, see which book items are from the Urban Outfitters gift table. In the meantime, you can connect with us on Instagram at like a virgin42069. Um, Did we miss anything you wanted us to talk about this week? Are you happy Halloween's over? Are you looking forward to the holidays? Let us know. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us so much. I'm your co-host, Rose Damu. You can find me anywhere online at Rose Damu. And I'm Fran. You can find me at Fran Squish Co. Anywhere you want. Subscribe to Like a Virgin anywhere you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts. Like a Virgin is an iHeartRadio production. Our producer is Phoebe Unter with support from Lindsay Hoffman, Julian Weller, Jess Kranchich, and Nikki Etor. Until next week, choose, as Lydia Tarr would say in Berlin.
4: (laughs) Bye.